Uh, if you're new or you're just kind of coming back from a bit of summer rest and uh, recovery, then let me catch you up to speed at what's going on. Many of you may be quite familiar with the story of Jonah. Maybe you've read the book of Jonah. Maybe you've told the story countless times to your children. But what we're finding out is that there's so much more to this little book than at first meets the eye. It's easy to glance across the surface and to capture a sense of awe and wonder, and there's mystery and there's power, there's supernatural events taking place, but it's easy to miss the the greater points that God is trying to drive into the heart of every person who hears and reads this book. Jonah was a prophet of God. God one day called him out of his comfortable ministry to the nation of Israel where he had blessing and honor. He ministered during a time of great blessing where the borders of Israel were being expanded, where their enemies were being held at bay. He was quite popular and everything for him was quite comfortable. God one day shook him out of his comfortability, out of his complacency in serving him and called him to go to Nineveh and the heart of Assyria to minister to these wicked, wicked people, God-hating, evil, vile people. Jonah uh, did not appreciate the new mission that God was sending him on. And so instead of heeding the word of God and instead of abiding in the presence of God, he resisted and he fled the presence of God. He ran far away from God. He tried to get as far away as possible from the presence of God. So he got on a ship and he was on his way to Tarshish where he thought that he could escape God and God's presence in his life. But God sent a storm. The text literally tells us that he hurled a storm like a man hurls a javelin at the boat and it begins to shake and the waves begin to rage against this ship and everybody on board begins to fear for their lives. It's a terrifying experience and all the while Jonah is down, deep down in the boat. He's sleeping and slumbering. He's woken up by the captain who alerts him to the danger they're in and he presses him to call out to his God and maybe your God can save us. Jonah knows, in an instant he knows that God is responsible for this storm and at the heart of that he understands this, that he is responsible for God bringing this storm. It is his sin and he is very aware and he gives them the only solution possible to calm the raging seas, he says, you must take me and throw me overboard. God's wrath and his anger must be appeased and that takes a sacrifice. Throw me overboard. And so they do reluctantly throw him overboard. And as he's drowning deep into the ocean, as he goes to the roots of the mountains and seaweed entangles his head, as he says in chapter two, he calls out to the Lord. And God in his mercy and in his grace he sends a giant fish to swallow Jonah. But it's here that we often lose focus in this story. We begin to become enamored by this great fish and its significance or our the thought of significance, but instead this great fish that swallowed Jonah in judgment, we must understand, was also sent by God to prepare him for the work of evangelism. God is sending a message to Jonah by swallowing him and by rescuing him in this fish. And the greater miracle was not the preservation in a fish, but it was the restoration to God that occurred there. The focus of this story is not the belly of the fish, but the heart of the man Jonah. 
It's not the realm of nature, but the realm of grace that becomes the dominating feature of this story. You see, Jonah needed to feel and experience the grace of God towards himself before he could be a suitable minister of that grace towards other people, and especially towards the people in Nineveh. And so God would have us this morning turn and fix our eyes upon his grace, that we might gain a greater understanding of his grace, how it is constantly operating around us and within us and through us. And this is a fantastic chapter of God's word that just highlights for us one of the most important truths of all of the Bible, that we serve a God of relentless grace. The first thing I want to draw out from this text is this, the grace of a second chance. And let's begin by reading the entire chapter three. Let's back up and begin at chapter two, verse 10. It says this, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented on the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. And in here, we see so much grace just overflowing from the pages of Scripture, like a never-ending well. And the first thing that we notice is, again, we noted this last week, but it bears repeating. We notice with Jonah that he received the grace of a second chance. Verses one through three is a powerful section and it parallels the very first call of Jonah. You can look right across to chapter one and see virtually the very same words on the page in the first few verses. Notice what's happening here. God is calling him and he's recommissioning Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Notice this, I circled this in my Bible, the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. After being launched from the belly of this great fish onto dry land, Jonah would now clean himself up and start all over again. This truly is a new start for Jonah. This is a second chance. This is a new lease on life for Jonah, and he is bound to do things the right way this time. In light of Jonah's earlier disobedience, what could possibly be more stunning to Jonah? Just think about that. 
A prophet fleeing from God, a prophet turning his back on his duty, on his responsibility, now has been rescued and recommissioned. This is stunning, this is humbling. Called back to his original assignment, one that he was reluctant to fulfill. What could possibly be more gracious of God than to offer this second chance to Jonah? And I think this is interesting because when you think of scripture, it's helpful to understand this. We're not always promised a second chance. Not all of us are given a second chance. I just wanna caution you as I caution my own heart this morning, we should not ever take second chances for granted. I think of Romans 6.1, how many people are living in this lie, right? Maybe we should keep sinning so that grace may abound, right? God's gracious, God forgives, so let's keep on sinning so that grace can keep abounding. What a great way to respond to the grace of God, right? What does Paul say? No, may it never be. May it never be. And there are examples in scripture from cover to cover of those who were given no second chances. This was, this was really hit me like a ton of bricks this past week as I began to meditate and think over the countless examples. Let me just give you two. Uh, one that we've preached on already here through First uh, and Second Samuel. Remember Saul? Called by God, given a great privilege to lead the people of God, called to be king of the nation of Israel. And because of his disobedience, he was fired as king. No second chance. How about New Testament? You say, does this happen in the New Testament? What what, what do you think about Ananias and Sapphira? You ever read that in Acts chapter (laughs) 5? Here comes Ananias and Sapphira marching into church, and everything at the beginning of the church is going pretty well. People are giving and sharing. You know, they're being generous with all they have, and Ananias and Sapphira, they determined to lie to the Spirit of God and lie to the people of God by saying, yeah, we, we, we sold our property and we gave all the money. Meanwhile, they kept some back for themselves. Instantly on the spot, Ananias drops dead. Uh, No second chance. Sapphira comes in like three hours later, right, trying to get her hair just right, and she walks into the front, and, and, and she, the, the, the apostles ask her the same thing. Is, is this true? Did you give all the money? Yeah, yeah. Well, then we're going to, you know, the, the feet of the men who just buried your husband, they're walking in the doors now, and they'll carry your body out and bury you with them too. Bam, dead, no second chance. You see, I I say all that just to remind us, look, it is a stunning gift of God's grace that we're ever given second chances. It is a stunning miracle of God's grace that we don't pay for our sins on the spot every time, is it not? Because God would be right and just to do that. Rather than taking it for granted, we should rejoice in the reality that God gives us second chances and at the heart, listen, at the heart of the Christian message is a message of new beginnings and fresh starts. Praise God, amen? God takes people who are broken, people who are messed up, people who have made a mess of their lives, people who are hurting. And that God, this God is a God of forgiveness. He's a God of patience. He's a God of amazing, immeasurable grace. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what your past has been like. I don't know what this week has been like. I don't know what mess you're in. I don't know what difficulty you found yourself in. I don't know what choices you've made, what decisions you've made. Maybe you've even turned from God today. Maybe you've, you've turned like Jonah and you've walked in the opposite direction. You said, God, I, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Maybe you're running from God this morning. I don't, I don't know where you're at, but I know this for sure. You can turn. You can turn. There is a hope of a new beginning. 
a fresh start, a second chance. And I want to encourage you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're so stuck in your sin. Maybe you feel, you know, and maybe some of you are believing the lies. I'm stuck. I can't get out. There's no hope for me. I'll never get past this. I can never be forgiven for this. There's no hope. There's none for me. Maybe for other people, none for, none for me. Maybe that's you this morning. And I just want to encourage you, don't believe the lies. The message of the gospel is a message of hope, of forgiveness, of redemption, and of restoration for all people who turn to God. Look at, look at the very beginning of verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That is such a profound statement. And it's profound because where he once rose to flee from the presence of God, now he rises to obey the word of God. And this is the mark of every person who's turned back to God. They hear the word of God and they respond in obedience to the word of God. He is living like he's been giving a second chance at life. I want you just to think about that for a second. Friends, let me ask you this morning, if you're in Christ, are you living as if you've been given a second chance? Viktor Frankl, uh, a man who survived the Nazi war camps, wrote this profound statement. He said this, he said, live as if you are living a second time and as though you had acted wrongly the first time. And many of us, we, we get this, don't we? Because we can look back at our lives and we can see, we can see that we have sinned, that we've turned our back on God. Some of us, it's more obvious than others. We know, we know deep down in our hearts, even if we're trying to flee and resist and reject God, in our hearts we know this, we know that there is a God that we have rejected and resisted. We know that we have sinned against this God and we know deep down inside that we deserve punishment and judgment. And that the second chance that we have is only possible to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that we have in this world that though we've been sinners, though we've rebelled against God, through Jesus Christ, through what he's accomplished on the cross, we are given a second chance at life. Through believing in him, Jesus gives us the ultimate second chance. And Jonah points us towards that second chance. Through Jesus Christ this morning, you can be given a fresh start. Through Jesus Christ this morning, you can become a new creation. You can have a new beginning, a new identity, a new destiny. And listen, listen, this is really big. A new opportunity. A new opportunity to live this life no longer for yourself, no longer in your sin, but for him who died to set you free. God gives us each a new opportunity. Past failures, here's the problem that we experience. Past failures in our life, past sins, they often haunt us and eventually hurt us. We live there. We find our identity there. Uh, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a this. I'm an adulterer. I'm a person who's struggled with lust. I'm a person, right, who's hurt people with my words. I have anger problems. I have despair and discouragement. And we, we live in that world. And what happens is that holds us back because that's not where God calls us to find our identity. He's freed us. Listen, through the power of the gospel, we are freed from finding our identity in our past failures and in our life of sin Instead, here's, this is the awesome truth of the gospel. Instead, our past failures and our past sin actually can be used by God and can prepare us for present, powerful usefulness in his hands. 
Isn't that awesome? What was your failure and your mess God can use to make you the kind of person he wants you to be? And that's exactly what he's done with Jonah, right? He's taken this crushed, broken down Jonah who's rejected and rebelled against him in massive sin, and he said, now, I wanna use your sin and use your poor response to mold you into the man I want you to become because I have a mission for you to complete. Some of us need to take great comfort in that because we still live in the shame of our past sin and failure. And it's not a justification of our sin, it's not an excuse to keep on sinning, but it gives us great hope. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans 5.20, he says, now the law came to increase, in to increase the trespass, listen to this, I love this, but where sin increased, come on, grace abounded all the more. How awesome is that? How about Romans 8.28, listen to this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, do you wanna know that all things include your sin? It includes your failures? God takes that and like he redeems you, he redeems your past. So here's Jonah. He's had a deep experience with God's grace which makes him a greater messenger of God's grace. Do you see that? And listen, when you have a deep experience of God's grace in your life, God is preparing you to become a greater messenger of that grace towards others. It was the restoration of Jonah, as we will see, that would be the means of revival in Nineveh. And notice how that takes place, because God does use means. He uses people. He uses methods to accomplish his goodwill. Notice this, secondly, the grace of a bold proclamation. The grace of a bold proclamation Jonah gets up and he marches into the city in chapter three, or excuse me, verse three, notice that. And uh, he says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Like a new person with a new beginning and a fresh start, Jonah is resolved in his obedience to God. John Calvin writes this, he says, the prophet seems to have forgotten that he was an obscure man, alone and unarmed, but he had laid hold of weapons capable of destroying all the power of the world, for he knew that he was sent from above. His conviction was that God was on his side and he knew that God had called him. Notice the emphasis placed on the greatness of the city of Nineveh. In Jonah's day, Nineveh was great in many ways. And here, there's extra emphasis in the text, exceedingly great. Nineveh was great in its time and in its day in terms of its population, in terms of its power. It was great in its prestige. It was great in its importance. Now, it's helpful maybe to know, you might have a little footnote in your Bible, uh, that this phrase can be translated as a superlative, meaning it's exceedingly great, or it can even mean this, it is great to God. If that's the case, if it means great to God, it's possible to understand not just the vast size, although I, I, I lean more towards that because the next phrase says that the city was three days journey in breadth. It's kind of clarifying, I believe. But it's possible to take this as meaning the city was great to God. In in other words, it had great intrinsic value to God. God had set his special love and affection upon this city. It was great to him. It's probably a little bit of both. Nineveh was a huge metropolis at its time, between 120 and 150,000 people. 
It was the center of commerce, uh, finding the best of everything from around the world. Whatever you wanted, you could get there. It was a political capital. It was the center of the vast nation of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. It was a cultural hub. It was a religious hub. Polytheism was rampant. There were temples and massive structures devoted to all kinds of gods. Beyond that, it was a city of great evil. The very first verse in Jonah chapter one tells us that their evil had come up before God. We know from reading extra biblical literature, this is well known and well documented, the nation of Assyria was known, listen, for its terror and torture of people. They prided themselves in striking terror into the hearts of the surrounding nations. It was, it was great joy to them. I read some accounts of kings you know, inscribing after their victories what they did with the bodies of the people they conquered, how they filleted them, skinned them alive, draped their skin across you know, different things just to show, look how powerful we are. They were horrific people. No mercy. It was a city of great evil, great oppression, great injustice, a place where people were obsessed, listen, with their pleasure, and there was no pleasure that was not pursued. Does it sound familiar? It was truly an incredible city at the time. A city, the text tells us here, of three days' journey in breadth. Again, there's some textual issues here, so let me just tell you what this could mean. A three days' journey in breadth, that we know this from archaeological evidence that Nineveh, which by the way is in modern-day Iraq, it's actually right outside of Mosul, is seven miles across. And so the circumference of the city was about 49, 50 miles, they they say. They actually have the gates, massive gates that they have unearthed, and massive walls. Even recently, they have new archaeological evidence for the city of Nineveh, which is just startling how it lines up perfectly with the word of God, by the way. So this idea of three days journey in breadth could mean uh, one of two things, I think. One, uh, if, if you walked it, it would take three days to cross. And in the ancient world, the average person walked around 17 miles a day. That's 51 miles across, just kind of around and through the village. Or it could mean this, three days to visit all the major sites. You know, if you're going on a trip downtown Toronto, well, let's pick somewhere better. Uh, uh, <laughs> if you're going to New York City, Right? It's going to take you a little, I mean, you could get across the city in no time, but if you're all to visit all the major spots and you know, the major hubs of the city and see all the sites, it's going to take you a little while. Regardless, the picture being painted was that it's a massive place. And comparative to the nation of Israel, it just trumps it. You know, here's, here's this little podunk pastor, this little preacher from you know, Gath Heifer, this tiny little place on the outskirts of Galilee, and he's walking into New York City for the first time, right? The scale and the magnitude would blow your mind. Here's what's important. When you consider all of that, there's, there's purpose here. Jonah is faced with this monumental task of proclaiming the word of God to this massive, pagan, pleasure-obsessed, sin-seeking, evil-pursuing, fear-producing city. It's one restored rebel versus the world. This is a overwhelming task. That's the idea being painted here by the Spirit of God. 
This is a massive task. What are the odds of seeing any fruit from this mission? Can you imagine being Jonah for just a second? I mean, have you ever been faced with what appears to be a humanly impossible task and thought, what's the point? Why would I even bother? This is futile. Maybe you feel that way when you think about our region or your city or your neighborhood, the community that you live in. The task is too big, it's too great, it's beyond me, it's overwhelming. Will they listen, will they even hear me? Maybe you're a parent and think, how am I ever gonna lead my children to Christ? How am I going to protect their souls in this sin-cursed world that seems to be getting worse and worse? How am I gonna lead my children well in wisdom and guide them along the paths of righteousness and truth? It's so hard. I mean, every day I get so tired, I'm so exhausted, right? I'm I'm up to my eyeballs with other things. I'm irritated and I'm frustrated. Can I get an amen, moms, Right? right? It's exhausting. How in the world am I going to do this? I want to do better, but I feel so overwhelmed by the task. I want to work on my marriage, but we continue to struggle with the same things over and over and over again. I want to be a light to my neighbors, but I'm just so busy. I'm so busy with so many projects and tasks. I want to work on my friendships, but I've been so hurt by people in the past, and I, don't, I can't be vulnerable again because of what they've done to me, and I just, there's no way I can go through that again, so I'm not going to open up. I want to be a light in my workplace, but I'm scared. What if I inject my, myself into a conversation and my religious views into the conversation, and they turn on me, and they hate me, and they ostracize me, and they humiliate me? Like, what if, what if, Right? I wonder if we might allow Jonah to adjust our perspective and help us reassess our lives. See, perhaps you've begun to believe that the jobs are too great for you and that God has chosen the wrong person for the mission. You ever feel like that? You're too insignificant, the task is too great. I just want you to look at verse four again and notice what Jonah does in light of this massive task, overwhelming. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This little prophet hikes into the greatest city in the world and taking on the vastness of the city, just soak this in for a minute. He stops his heart begins to thump in his chest. He looks around in the hustle and bustle of daily life, the busyness, the temples, the sounds, the smells, and he starts to simply preach. In the chaos, will this man and his message even be heard? And here he is, boldly proclaiming a message, and do you notice the message of judgment? Maybe the better question is, will this man even survive? And he's declaring to them this message, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? One little man against the world. Here's the principles for us. Listen, he was commissioned as a herald to proclaim the message that God had given him to fulfill the role of a faithful witness. Jonah didn't know what the result was going to be. He simply knew what he was called to do and he did it. Did you catch that? He had no clue if anybody was going to hear, if anybody was going to listen. He had no clue if his life was going to be spared. He simply knew God is calling me to this and I need to be faithful and obey the word of God and I will go. And that's exactly what he did. 
Let God take care of the results. Let God deal with people. That's a powerful lesson for you and I to learn, isn't it? We just need to be faithful to do what God calls us to do. So at the end, when we stand before Jesus Christ and and he says to us, what did you do with what I gave you? We can say the words and we can hear the words. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the issue for all of us. But listen, there's so much we can learn from how he did what he did. See, I just want us to just take a quick second and let's just take a look at the nature of this proclamation. It may have been all that was said, by the way, or it may have simply been a summary. Maybe there was more. So yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown is, is uh, that, that's just a very, it sounds to me like a bite-sized message. That's possible that that's all he said. That's very, very possible. It's also possible that this is kind of a summary statement of what he said. Maybe he, he went and he declared, he witnessed to them, not only this coming judgment, but he told them about how he got there. I mean, can you imagine how powerful that would be? Hey, just so you know, this God who sent me here to tell you this, I tried to run from him. And, he th- and I had to be thrown into an ocean and but it's okay though, he swallowed me by a great fish and spat me up on the sea, on the edge of the sea. Like, do you think that's pretty powerful? I'm just telling you, like I experienced the grace of God and you need to know this, when God tells you to repent and turn to him, he means business, right? Trust me. And so here's Jonah, maybe he's declaring this message, maybe he's told them about the supernatural events surrounding his coming there. Whatever he's doing, he's declaring to them the truth that God has told him to declare. Just notice a few simple principles about this. First, it was urgent. Did you catch that? Listen, how our proclamation of the truth must have a sense of urgency with it. It was urgent. Judgment is imminent. Imminent. Forty days is a, you know look that number up in scripture. Often it's associated with times of divine judgment. Think of how the rain fell for forty days. No one in the ark. Think of how uh, uh, the Israelites were punished for forty years because of their rebellion against God. Judgment is imminent. He had a window. Listen to this. This is so, so helpful. He had a window into when God would punish this wicked nation. He knew 40 days and God will overthrow you. Now, now here's why this matters for us. We must approach our proclaiming the truth with a great sense of urgency because we know the judgment of God is imminent. Amen? It is coming. We don't know when. And listen, listen, here's the scary part. Hebrews 9 says this, it's appointed unto man to die once and then comes judgment. Listen, every person here will stand before the great judge Jesus Christ one day. Jesus will either return and you will stand in his presence and everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, listen, this is very important, look up here, everything will be laid bare before God. There will be no excuses, there will be no justifications, there will just be the knowledge of guilt and shame. And for some of us in this place, listen, the judgment is coming very, very soon. And if you stand before God and, and you just, you stand before God and he says, why? Why should I not punish you for your sins? And you try and give some other reason other than your belief in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you right now, it's not gonna work out well for you. 
So there was a sense of urgency required in the proclamation of the truth, and Jonah knew this. You need to repent. The judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. I want you just to notice this too. He didn't shy away from preaching judgment, right? So many people in our culture are terrified of telling people that the consequences of sin is the judgment of God, right? We We wanna massage the message, and we wanna water it down. We wanna make it palatable and easy for people because we're so afraid of offending them with the truth of God's word. Meanwhile, listen, the truth of judgment is powerful in the hearts of sinners. If there is no sense of imminent judgment, there is no need for an imminent savior. Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he would use his time if he was given it to preach the gospel. And he said that he would spend 40 minutes preaching on judgment and five minutes preaching on the solution of salvation in Christ. He would talk more about sin and the consequences of sin because listen, if you know you're drowning, that's when you know you need a life preserver. Urgency is required and necessary. We see that in Jonah's example. Notice this secondly, it was simple. It's urgent, it's simple. He preaches, in other words, in such a way as to bring awareness of our brokenness and God's healing. The message seems to be so clear, so simple. He's not trying to get into all kinds of theological nuances and what ifs. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that people are asking questions. I can only imagine that he tried to answer their objections. He made clarifications. And in our simplicity, that is not an excuse for not being persuasive and winsome and careful and thoughtful in how we proclaim the truth. We need to show people and make them aware of the brokenness of their condition that's caused by sin. And that the only hope for healing is found in God's forgiveness and in God's grace. So he was urgent and he was simple and here's here's what's so helpful for us in our culture, it was courageous, wasn't it? Again, a man against the world, here he goes boldly, courageously in and he begins to declare the truth of God's word. How we need to be a people, listen, who are with with great clarity and great conviction boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only hope for salvation. How we desperately need to be a people who pray, right, Like like the apostle Paul for boldness that we might declare the message of salvation as we ought to speak it. Listen, the call to be a Christian is a courageous call. The call to be a herald, a messenger, of the truth, a steward of the gospel is a call to be courageous, not to be complacent, not to be timid, not to sit on the sidelines. It's a call to get in the game. It's a call to step out in faith. It's a call to trust God. It's a call to sacrifice much. It's a call to be willing to give everything for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the fame of his name, listen, and for the eternal salvation of the souls of people. So people's souls at stake. And we, the primary thought driven out of here is this. We are a people called to go, amen? We are a people called to go. And it is the grace of God that we can go and boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. That's a gift of God's grace to know it. It's a gift of God's grace to declare it. Thirdly, notice this, the grace of a transformed heart. 
Now, maybe, maybe all of that, that rally call from the scriptures is really unnerving for you. Maybe it's like, it's, it's terrifying to think about what it might cost you to go and, and how difficult is this job? And, and yes, I know I need to go, but this is going to be hard. Listen, how powerful and exciting is verse five? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Look at the power of God operating here in the hearts and minds of people. Look at the grace of God being extended to them. The people of Nineveh believed God. I love that because it reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where the apostle Paul, as he's speaking so tenderly to the church in Thessalonica, he says to them, you took my words, you believed my words as not the words of man, but as the very words of God, because that is what they are. Here, it was not about believing a man. It was believing that God was speaking through a man. And notice this. Look, the God who crafts storms and commands sea monsters is now doing something even more awesomely difficult. He's changing the hearts of sinful human beings. That's a miracle. He's taking what's dead and bringing it to life. Here's the power and grace of God on display because you have to get this. Look, you never believe God. Look, you never, the person who loves sin, the person who loves pleasure, the person who loves power, the person who loves prestige, the person who loves this world, never, listen, never believes God apart from the powerful action of God upon their heart. Faith, we saw this, Ephesians 2, faith is a gift from God. It's a grace gift. And listen, when we get this, this changes everything because that, here's what this means. This isn't little tiny Jonah against big, massive, monstrous Nineveh. This is a mighty God who is all powerful, who is completely sovereign over the universe in great grandeur and glory against little, tiny, weak, minuscule Nineveh. So your calling, listen, Christian, your calling is not to accomplish the task. Your calling is to go, and God will accomplish the task because you can't do the task on your own. You can't turn a heart. Some of you in here, you're praying desperately, and you're trying desperately to see people you know and love turn to Jesus Christ. But listen, here's, here's what you need to embrace. You can't turn a heart. You can't transform a sinner into a saint. You can't make an immoral person moral. You can't make a perverted heart pure. You can't make a rebellious child obey, amen? Like, how hard is that? <sighs> Listen, wives, you can't make a stubborn husband loving and kind. Husbands, you can't make a bitter wife gentle and soft. But listen, what a burden off of your shoulders. What a burden off of your shoulders. Parents, your job isn't to make your children believe Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. Your job isn't to fix your spouse. Only God can do that. Our job is not to convert the Durham region, listen to this, or our neighbors. Only God can do that. But God says to you and to me this morning, but won't you go? Won't you go? Won't you be my vessel? Won't you be my means of communicating the truth of salvation to those around you? Won't you let me use you? 
Won't you go to your children? Won't you go to your spouse? Won't you go to your friends and your neighbors? Won't you go to your coworkers and your community, to the Durham region and to Ontario, to Canada and to the nations? Won't you go? Won't you go for me? Won't you believe that I'm a God of great grace and I will never send you alone, but lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I go with you. I empower you for the mission and I will accomplish what you can't. Isn't that great news? And notice what happens. This is so awesome. From the greatest alum to the least, this is a wholesale, full-fledged revival of the city of Nineveh. Everybody turns to God. God's word comes with such immense power. It has the power to completely change a heart and completely change a culture. How amazing would it be to see this in our city? Do you believe it can happen? Look at the evidence of the transformed hearts that we see here. This is so powerful. The call for fasting and putting on of sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, they don't just want to be verbal in their confession of sin and their recognition of wrong. Instead, their lives want to demonstrate this. So powerful. Fasting is, listen to this, is intentional self-denial for the purpose of communion with God. It's intentional self-denial, denying yourself uh, necessities and pleasures, listen, in recognition that the greater necessity is God himself. The greater pleasures are found in God himself. Sackcloth was the clothing of mourning, of grief, of what would be done when somebody died. And here, people who, listen, were once found, excuse me, once found pleasure in their sin are now weeping over it. I mean, they're bawling, they're just falling on their face in acknowledgement of the wrong that they've done and how they have rebelled against the God of the universe. They're just weeping tears of sorrow. They're understanding that their sin caused not only spiritual death, it caused immense destruction both personally and corporately in their culture and society, in their hearts and in their homes. They're understanding for the first time that God's judgment is upon them. And here's what you need to understand. They know that it's right. The king's reaction is probably more astounding. Look at this. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. You know what he's saying? He's saying he's acknowledging getting up out of his throne, taking up, I'm not in charge. I'm not the sovereign one. I must be in submission to one greater than me. So he, he models great humility And he issues this proclamation. He published it through all of Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast. Isn't this interesting? Man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. This is a, like, we're we're abandoning all food, all water. This isn't just for people. This is for animals too. Like, here's what he's doing. They They are demonstrating the seriousness of their sin. They're making a statement about the affront that it is to God. But catch this. You're like, why the animals? Why would you, why would you do that to the animals? Do you ever think about that? Think about this. Have you, ever, like, have you ever not fed your cat or your dog for like a day? <laughs> Is that cruel? Is that long? Like, I don't have animals, so. Like, like what, what do they do? They just drive you crazy, right? They start barking or meowing or pestering you or biting you. I don't know what your animal does. 
they go insane. Just think about what this would accumulate over day after day after day. No animals allowed to eat, no animals allowed to drink. Listen, the, the bawling and the bleeding of the animals would be a constant reminder, like the hunger pangs in their stomach of how desperately they need to call out to God, how desperately they need God. It was a powerful, verbal, audible reminder of their sin and their need for a gracious God to forgive them. So they call out to God and the the decree is issued, let us all call out to God mightily, I love that. I mean, you better just get on your face and call out as loud as you can, as much as you can, God, forgive us. This is a mighty calling upon God. And notice this too, it's not just a turning to God, it's a turning from sin. Let everyone turn from his evil way. They're recognizing it, our sin, our sin has to be dealt with. We've sinned against God, the violence that's in our hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent. It's a possibility. Listen, every one of us needs to learn how to mourn sin like this, don't we? Every one of us, and listen, you can't, you can't have salvation in Jesus Christ until you've learned to mourn sin, until you've acknowledged, listen, your sin is not primarily against other people, it's against the God and creator of the universe. And it's not until you get broken before him, truly broken, and you call out to him mightily, in repentance and faith, believing that God can save, it's not until you do that that you can have salvation from his hands. And the only question left for them is this, what will he do? What will he do? Finally, notice this, the grace of a merciful God. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Surely, if they remained in their sin, if they did not humble themselves like they did, listen, judgment would come upon them, and here they serve as a picture of unrepentant humanity in one sense. All the world is like Nineveh. All the world is held under the judgment of God. God's judgment is just waiting to be unleashed upon the world for their sins. And unless you turn and repent, it will be unleashed upon you. That's what hell is for. It is the place where people pay eternally for their sins, where the wrath of God is poured out upon them. Or, or you see the grace of a merciful God by turning and he relents from the disaster that he is right to give to you, but he chooses not to do it. In God's great grace, he extends great mercy. It's been said that grace is being given what you do not deserve, and mercy is not being given what you do deserve. And while they deserved a judgment and death for their wickedness, God instead withheld that judgment, that's mercy, and instead he gave them forgiveness, that's grace. God is a God of abundant pardons. Salvation is predicated upon this truth. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath. The grace of the gospel is seen in that sinners are spared. 
And in Nineveh, we see that God withheld his wrath. And this side of the cross, you know, we can ask the question, well, what happened to that wrath? Where did that wrath go? You know, we, we, we don't believe that God just sweeps sin under the rug. God doesn't wink at sin. Like, oh, just, ah, oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. We'll forgive that one this time. We'll just let it go. God can't do that and remain just. God must be just and the justifier of the unjust, and the only way he does that is not by averting his wrath, but by diverting his wrath. It gets removed off of you and me, just like he removed it off of Nineveh, and it gets placed on someone else. While his wrath here was delayed, it was not simply removed. It was placed upon one man. God in his patience, look, he looked forward as he, uh, as he took the wrath and he withheld the wrath that they deserved because of the repentance and their faith. Listen, his wrath was held back for a time, but God with great patience looked towards the day, the day when Jesus Christ would hang on a cross and he will, would absorb, listen, the full weight of wrath for every Ninevite who put their faith and trust in him. And where Jesus Christ would absorb the full weight of wrath for every single person in here who would put their faith and trust in him. Jesus took all of Nineveh's sins and he took all of our sins as he hung on the cross. See, the cross for Christians is the constant reminder that we are rebels like Jonah. We are sinners deserving judgment like Jonah and like Nineveh. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I want to invite the worship team to come up as we prepare our hearts for communion. just want to ask you a question. Maybe, maybe you see yourself in the text today. Maybe you're seeing yourself today in Nineveh and you know that you're a sinner. You know that God's judgment is upon you. You know that you are deserving of his judgment. You know that you have rebelled. You know that you have done many wicked and evil things. You know that your sin is before your very eyes and it is not hidden from the sight of God. But for you and for me today, if that's you, listen, if you respond like Nineveh, you too can be spared like Nineveh. Call out to him. Call out to him right now. Look to Jesus Christ, the one who absorbed all of God's wrath, all of your punishment upon himself, and who turns and transfers his gracious and abundant righteousness to you. Call out to him right now in this moment and find that his grace is available to you. For those of us who are saved, uh, we like Jonah have been given, haven't we, the grace of a second chance in Jesus Christ. We, like Jonah, have been given the message of grace to proclaim. As he reflected on his experience of grace, it motivated him to declare God's grace. It pressed him out of his comfort zone, out of his comfortability to go and tell people about what God had done in his own life and what God could do for them. I was reflecting this morning on Romans 10, verse 15, where the Apostle Paul talks about how the church is used to spread this message of grace to the nations. And just, I want you just to hear these words. Listen to this. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Just look at your feet for a minute. Look at your neighbor's feet. We'll really make them feel weird. 
Tell, tell the person next to you, say, your feet are beautiful. Go ahead. <laughs> Just tell me, you know, you know why your feet are beautiful? Listen, your feet are beautiful because they're attached to a body. Listen, listen, listen. Your feet are beautiful because they're attached to a body that's attached to a head that has lips on it that have the power and the ability to declare the saving message of Jesus Christ, the grace of God that's available to sinners. Isn't that awesome? So your feet are beautiful because we take this message out. We don't keep it to ourselves, we bring it out to the world and we let God do what only he can do. We let God be in charge of the results. We let God transform the hearts of sinners just like he's transformed ours.